Welcome to episode 243 of Stageworthy. I'm your host, Phil Rickaby. Stageworthy is a podcast about people in Canadian theatre featuring conversations with actors, directors, playwrights, and more. If you like Stageworthy and you listen on Apple Podcasts, I hope that you'll leave a five-star rating and a comment. Your ratings and comments help new people find the show. But you know what? Even better, regardless of where you're listening to Stageworthy, if you know someone that you think will like the show, tell them about it. Some of my favorite podcasts became my favorites because someone I know told me about them. And remember, you can find it and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify just by clicking the handy subscribe button. So if you tell someone about Stageworthy, let me know about it. You can find Stageworthy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the archive of all 243 episodes at StageworthyPodcast.com. And if you want to drop me a line, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Phil Rickaby, and my website is philrickaby.com. My guest this week is E.B. Smith. E.B. is an actor, director, and teacher. He's been seen on stages at the Stratford Festival, as well as London, Ontario's The Grand Theatre, and Chicago Shakespeare, and so many more. He's also a co-founder of Ghostlight, where he is also director of Creative Strategy. E.B., thank you so much for, for, for talking with me today. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, what is Ghostlight? What's the elevator pitch? And what, what's your role within Ghostlight? Uh, well, I am a co-founder and uh, creative strategy director at Ghostlight. Um, and our goal is to develop uh, an online theater training platform that's going to bring... Um, it, it, that's going to bring offerings that 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 people aren't going to experience in theater school or sort of currently existing professional training scenarios. Um, I think our strength is that uh, we can build, um, because we have such a reach, uh, strategies for approaching the work that are going to, in some ways, revolutionize the frameworks under which we enter rehearsal. Now you're now you're also um, you were mentioning uh, in our some of our earlier conversation that you're sort of heading up the summer camp for for Ghostlight. So what does what does summer camp look like, especially as a digital entity? What does summer camp look like? Uh, well, uh, it's 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 an interesting exercise. Really, we're we're trying to figure out ways to keep theater training alive and uh, sort of vital. Uh, while employing socially distant methods, <laughs> teaching over Zoom and Google Classroom and things like that, um, but I think one of the one of the really great things about the platforms that we're employing lately is that we can maintain a level of social connection uh, while we maintain that social distance. Um, and so I think we're we're really hoping that that our summer camps are going to help. Uh, foster a sense of community while still digging into the fundaments of, of performance and, uh, and theater making. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, 
of course, if it's if it's young people, they've already had some experience doing the digital classroom thing, um, although probably not as an acting class. Um, mm-hmm. And I've spoken to a couple of people about teaching uh, theater and related arts through digital, through Zoom or whatever uh, the platforms are. Um, what what are the, the the challenges that you've that you've seen in terms of of using digital to to try to teach people something that we usually do in in a room together? I think one of the the tough things to adjust to is the fact that uh, it feels like a film exercise somehow. You know, you're in front of a camera, uh, and and the tendency is to want to play to the camera, but you know, it's it's a bit of a imaginative exercise to try to break out of that and remember that we're we're doing this training for a theatrical venue um i think that's that's sort of at the heart of the the challenge of this work at the moment um and also it's easy to get distracted on a computer i think that's Mm -hmm. that's kind of the other the other end of it where uh it's kind of it's it's tough to 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 stay focused on a computer screen for hours at a time. So we're trying to create curriculum that's going to break people out of that, and do some independent work, and come back to the screen. So it's not as uh, staring into the blue light mm-hmm. uh, as as it can be. One of the challenges for me is because uh, in in my day job, I spend a lot of time on on digital meetings, and the big problem is the fact that I can see my face. Yes. I sort of become distracted by my own face <laughs> in a way help. that I'm not when I'm in the room with somebody. And that's a challenge for teaching acting because when we're doing theater, we're not supposed to look in the mirror when we're doing our lines. We're not supposed to worry about that sort of thing. But that's right. It's right there. Yeah. Any, any, any thoughts about how to encourage, especially young people, to ignore their face? Uh, I think it depends on the the style of class you're you're working in. Um, you know, it it helps I think to to be in speaker view as much as possible, so that you can have if you're on Zoom or Blue Jeans or or a, a platform like that, mm-hmm. um, so that you've got at least someone else's face uh, much more prominent than your own uh, to stare at. Um, but also, I think making friends with that face is a good idea as well. You know, it. it there is something important about getting used to your own reflection uh, and and enjoying your own reflection. I think that's something we have to work on as as a society a little bit, <laughs> actually, um, uh, because it is you know it is the it, it is the sign that you wear as you meet the world. And I think I think uh, the more you the more you the more you come to meet yourself, uh, the more effectively you can meet others. Now, how familiar with you were? You, how familiar were you when this all started with um, digital platforms? Uh, I've been I've been dabbling for quite a while. You know, I, I'm 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 a transplant in Canada. Uh, I'm from the states originally. I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, and I lived for a long time in Chicago, Illinois. So uh, my life has long been an exercise in how to keep in contact. Uh, through whatever means necessary with home, uh, mm. whichever home I'm currently <laughs> referring to, because um, I seem to have several in my past. But uh, but I think what's been really exciting for me is sort of taking that that teleconferencing 
technology, taking taking these platforms that were made to kind of hold business meetings and webinars, uh, and applying a narrative framework to what they're capable of, because mm. we don't usually use them for the purposes of theater making, um, but uh, but we can't stay in Zoom windows if we're going to tell a, a compelling story. <laughs> it just doesn't yeah. it just doesn't work for for very long. Uh, um, so that's been really exciting. You know, there are there are numerous platforms that are available and more are coming out every day and, and more functionality is being added. And I think as, as we, as we dig deeper into this medium, um, it's the, the possibilities are just going to sort of start, uh, multiplying exponentially. It's really exciting. Yeah. It's interesting because as part of my day job, I work, uh, in the events and conferences industry. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of that has been transferring to, I mean, the, the only option for the, for, for those just in, in the same way for theater has been to transfer over to digital media and trying to use things like zoom. And that industry has also been grappling with how do we make this interesting and not just a random Brady bunch grid of faces. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's a challenge that I think is still being worked on, but there's sort of new interesting things coming along all the time. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, it, 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 it's, it's, it's been one of our sort of running um, imagination exercises at Ghostlight since we started, because what we'd really love to do is develop uh, what we're calling the digital stage. And uh, we're working with several uh, theater makers now to, to create experiences that, that sort of bend the, the, the confines of each platform um, so that they all work in concert so that experiences will enter real life and come back into a live stream, uh, via YouTube or Vimeo and then, and sort of branch out again into an interactive portion on a platform like zoom. And then, um, I think one of the, the great things we can do with this technology is that we can, we can unshackle ourselves from the sort of three hour linear play mm -hmm. structure, right? So we can we can have an experience that happens over a week, you know, 15 minutes here, an hour here, half an hour here, um, and really kind of make it more immersive in a digital framework. Hmm. Yeah. I think, uh, I think, uh, early on in, in the, the, the pandemic we saw, at least I did, I saw a lot of where this is all we have. This is just what we're going to do. And now I think people, like you say, are grappling with, with how to make it, feel more like theater without mm -hmm. like as much as you can when it's a screen <laughs> right for now, sure you mentioned I mean, yeah, go ahead no please well well i i think i think there's there's been this debate about you know whether or not this online work is theater or if if we have to consider it something else and mm. um i mean that's a, do you have a particular area way that you fall on that yeah, I do. I mean, I, 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 I think we're being way too strict about what we consider theater. I think <laughs> yes. we're being really pompous and exclusionary. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, when we talk about theater being this sort of hallowed practice, I mean, it, it, it strikes me that, that the, the traditional paradigm that we think of when we think about theater is um, a building with a certain set of conventions, an audience and performers um, frankly, it's a very Western and colonial framework. Um, you know, if you, if you look at performance practices from around the world, 
they're not all like that. There's no fourth mm-hmm. wall in many of them. Um, mm-hmm. And and also there's there's the question of access. Um, it it strikes me that technology is way more pervasive than access to theater. And if we're going to if we're going to expand audiences, if we're going to talk to people cross culturally from various walks of life and various geographic locations, we really have to figure out how to reach them, how to go to them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we can't, I, I've worked at Stratford for the last 10 seasons and, you know, you can't come see a play at Stratford unless you have 150 bucks in your pocket. It's just not mm-hmm. possible. You've got to get yeah. here. You've got to eat something. You've got to go see the play. Yeah. Um, you know, and tickets range anywhere from 75 bucks to, I don't know, what is it? 150 now or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, you know, unless you're under 30, there are some deals, but it, it's, it's, it's hard to, to, it's hard to have access to that depending on what your situation is. Um, and I think, I think one of the benefits of, of this kind of technology is that it allows us to reach into, uh, you know, people's sphere wherever they are. You know, mm. you can turn on your phone and experience something. You can turn on your computer and see something. You can turn on your smart TV and see something. Um, and we can deliver it at a much lower price point because, uh, you know, we can, we can reach a lot more people. Yeah. So we can afford to say, you know, for 15 bucks, you can have this experience. Um, yeah. I think, I mean, I, I think, I think you're right. I do think that, that the attitude of, you know, this is not theater does come from a place of fear. It's that fear that, cause you know, people have been talking about the death of theater since the birth of radio. And, you know, I think that the idea people saying that, that, that this is not theater, try to hold on to theater can only exist in this, this setting comes from fear that at some point somebody might say, well, we can do this video thing. I guess that'll replace theater. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I I don't think anything's going to replace theater. Mm. I'm a, I'm a theater animal myself and, and I miss it terribly. Um, uh, but I also think, but I also think that theater needs to break out of its boxes. I think we need to augment our practice with something much more inclusive. Um, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, why, why not offer a live stream of, of a theater experience? That's the thing that we're missing. Now we do, you know, we'll do like a, you know, I might do a one performance of, of a live thing and then I leave it online for however long I decide to leave it online for. But, you know, what if I could be in the room you know, to borrow the line from Hamilton in the room where it happens, but without having to be in the room where it happens. For sure. I mean, and, and not just, not just as a replacement for the room where it happens, but what about an augmented experience, uh, an experience to augment what happens in that room? Mm. You know, if, 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 if your, if your interaction with that narrative doesn't stop at the door of the theater, how much more can we get out of that? kind of that, that narrative, right? How much more, but, how much more audience engagement can we gain by staying in contact uh, and continuing the narrative on through, you know? Um, and it can be personalized. Yeah. That you know, is, that can, is absolutely exciting. Yeah. You, know, if you think about the people who go to um, sleep no more again and again and again, mm-hmm. um, because they're, they're immersed in something. Um, but then to be able and because of digital, you can personalize it in a way that you can't in person. That's pretty exciting. 
Indeed, and 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 it, and and it also strikes me too that you know if if there are ways to know how people are interacting with the story. For example, I mean, Sleep No More is a good example. You know, you follow a character around the place. If we have a way to measure that, know where you know who you're interacting with in the story, that character can reach out to you personally, right? Ooh. And say. I have, I need you to do something. So next time you go back to the, to interact with the story in real life, you've got a mission. You've got another, Whoa. you've got another mandate to, to that fulfill. is, that is pretty exciting actually. Like that kind of, that kind of enhancement to a live theater experience to personalize it in a way for an audience member is, is pretty exciting. I'm kind of mm-hmm. getting goosebumps over here as you describe that. So <laughs> That's great. I think it's really exciting too. I mean, the applications kind of go on and on, you know, into the world of, of virtual reality and, and, mm. and sort of choose your own adventure as you interact with a live narrative could be really exciting. I think that is the longer that, that we are separated from our buildings of theater, from being able to gather there, I think innovation happens as people sort of grapple more and more with what is and start to think about what what it could be and and start pushing it in interesting directions like that. Indeed. Now, you mentioned um, growing up in Chicago. I grew up in Cleveland. Okay, growing up in Cleveland and then living in Chicago and then eventually finding your way to the Stratford Festival. So what what does that path look like to get you from from there to where you are now? (laughs) Oh, man. well, consider this your 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 superhero origin story. This is like <laughs> the origin story. Well, yes, I yes. I I went to Ohio University for my undergrad uh, theater training, and I I uh, did a BFA in acting there. Um, and then coming out of school, you know, all of my classmates were going to New York, Los Angeles, straight to Chicago. You know, big markets, and they were going to take the world by storm. And 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 I kind of felt. You know, I'd seen older students go and and work in hotels and restaurants and things, and and, and I just thought, I don't, I, I want to make art, man. I don't want to, mm. <laughs> I don't want to have to just get a day job and slog it out all the time, you know. Um, and Cleveland, where I grew up, happens to be a pretty reasonable place to live in terms of cost of living and stuff. And uh, so, you know, I had a day job, obviously, and I worked, but but uh, I was able to find people to make theater with um, in Cleveland because. There wasn't a whole. It wasn't. It wasn't an oversaturated place in terms of making theater. So, hmm. um, so I actually managed to 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 do some pretty exciting work and to work in some pretty big houses and 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 cut my teeth in a way that I probably wouldn't have been able to do quite so quickly had I gone to a major market. Um, so I was in Cleveland for about four years after. Well, well two and a half years after uh, uh, university and and. Uh, managed to get my equity card and, and I didn't go to Chicago until I had a show to go to Chicago with. Um, and that made kind of all the difference. You know, I hit the ground running with a show. I got another, I got an agent from that show. I got another show sort of subsequent because I got an agent and then uh, things grew from there. In 2009, I got a phone call. I was working on uh, Macbeth at Chicago Shakespeare theater. And uh, I got a, a phone call from a representative from the Stratford festival. And they said, the Stratford Festival would like to see you audition. And I said, uh, okay, um, how'd you get my number? <laughs> and, and she said, we have people. <laughs> and I went, all right, then I'll be there. <laughs> That's terrifying. Um, so I auditioned for Stratford uh, and I heard 
nothing after the audition for a year. I'd, I'd auditioned for Martha Henry and Beth Russell, uh, and I heard nothing for a year. Uh, almost a year to the day later, I got a phone call, and they said, um, are you available for a callback in a few weeks? That's a said, long wait between audition and callback. It really was. <laughs> um, but but they called me back, and they flew me to Stratford, and they, they put me through the ringer again. And, and a week later, I got an offer to join the conservatory in 2010. Um, before you went to theater school and studied theater, mm -hmm. um, was there something that you remember that was your entry into being interested in theater that wanting to be an actor? What was your, what, 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 what did you see or what made you want to, to, to do that? I, doing this as a career kind of felt like, uh, a flying leap off a cliff with no parachute. I, I didn't, hmm. I didn't have, I didn't have a whole lot of uh, faith that this could become a career at first. And so I, I initially wanted to be a pilot and hmm. I, I learned how to fly when I was in high school. Um, and uh, that was sort of my, my path. And I'd, I'd applied to the U S Naval Academy and I was dead set on going. And, and, and as I thought more uh, comprehensively about it, um, I realized I really didn't want to be part of a military industrial complex and decided that theater was a much mm. safer and, <laughs> uh, and, and more constructive way to spend my time. Um, but I guess, I guess if, if we're talking influences, my, my desire to tell stories was born at a really early age. My parents, uh, my parents had a friend named Hugh Morgan Hill, Dr. Hugh Morgan Hill, um, and he, he lived in Boston. He taught at Harvard. But his, his sort of nom de, plume, nom de plume or stage name was, was Brother Blue. Um, and he would, every day, put on his storytelling rags uh, and paint butterflies all over himself. And he would stand in the middle of Harvard Yard or in, in Cambridge somewhere uh, and tell stories to people on the street. Hmm. Um, this man knew every word that Shakespeare ever wrote by heart. <laughs> he had um, sort of the compendium of uh, black experience uh, from the moments, the moment that, that Africans arrived on the shores of North America in his brain. And he would just spin yarns and he was, you know, he was, he was the embodiment of the griot. Um, and I, I remember hearing him tell stories around our dinner table when he would come to visit, he actually predicted my birth <laughs> to the day <laughs> when my mother Whoa. was pregnant with me before my parents had told anybody she was pregnant. Oh, wow. Um, he was a very special human being. Mm. Um, but, but that lit the spark for me um, because I, I had, I think because at such a young age, I had been privy to the power of story and what it could do and how it could hold a room sort of wrapped um, and how important it was to hear, you know, stories that related so intimately to me modeled um, by someone who was memorializing them in story. Hmm. Um, so I, I think that that really did sort of light the, light the fuse for me. And I just sort of flew from there, I guess. Hmm. And then at some point when you decided that, that you didn't want to be involved with the military industrial complex, you decided that theater was the quote unquote safer option. <laughs> um, 
did uh, when you made that choice did anybody try to talk you out of it or did was everybody really supportive <laughs> my my high school college co- guidance counselor stopped talking to me <laughs> <laughs> when i when i said i want to go to ou they went okay good luck to you goodbye um oh. <laughs> uh, you know it was not it was not the uh the illustrious choice um as far as they were concerned mm. um but I mean, my parents were kind of thrilled, I think, especially my mother. Oh, yeah. It was like, mm. <laughs> oh, nobody's going to be shooting at you. Fantastic. <laughs> um, uh, but but yeah, my, my, you know, my, my parents are both um, uh, very big believers in following dreams. And, and, and I, you know, I wouldn't be sitting here today if it weren't for them. Like they, mm-hmm. they have always been enormous supports. Um, you know, my father, my father followed his dreams, played pro baseball when in his in his formative years. Uh, he played for the Chicago Cubs, um, and my mother is a music educator, and and arts and crafts kind of run in her veins as well. Mm. She uh, she now has a business that sells needlepoint supplies, and she does a lot mm. of uh, needle arts. Um, but it's all but it, it, what I do for a living has always sort of excited them, I think, because because they have always been aware of the power in it. I mean, they took me to theater as a kid all the time too, mm. uh, and we would have long conversations about what we'd just seen on stage and what it meant culturally and, and how to, how to interact with it and, and, and where its limitations are. Um, so I I mean, at the end of the day, I was probably bound to do this on some level. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting because, you know, having, having parents who follow their dreams is like a, it's like, that's a model for any child, mm-hmm. you know, to see rather than somebody who, who, you know, killed their dreams so they could have a steady job, somebody who kept pursuing their job, I th- their, their dream, I think is a, that's a formative ideal for a child to grow up and see. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, and, you know, my, my parents also, and my grandparents all have this sort of entrepreneurial spirit as well. And I think that's necessary for an artist. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you have to be able to self-generate. Um, because at the end of the day, you know, gigs are not promised. <laughs> and if you want to make yeah. something, sometimes you just got to make it yourself. And, and I think, I think growing up with that model as well was, was super impactful for me because they, um, they've been running a business together, my mother, my mother and father for, uh, close to 40 years. Um, and so to see that commitment to their work, to see that commitment to each other, you know, I mean, they, they sleep in the same bed, go to work, work in the same office, come home, make dinner and do it all again the next day. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they've, they've done, they've done that my entire life, uh, which mm-hmm. is, which is humbling to see because that's, that, that's, that's modeled a kind of stick and a kind of, uh, dedication that, that I hope to live up to. Now, uh, since you've been at Stratford, um, has Canada been your primary residence since uh, for ten years, or have you gone back and forth when you're not not working? Uh, Canada's pretty necessarily been my primary residence. I mean, I the, the Stratford season uh, from start of rehearsals to the end of the contract is sometimes upwards of eight or nine months. Mm, that's um, true. So, and especially during conservatory, my first couple of years here, I don't think I, I didn't have more than a couple of weeks off at a time to go anywhere. So, right. um, so yeah, I've been in Canada, the lion's share of the last 10 years. Um, the first show that I've done in the States since coming to Canada was actually this past winter. I did a show in Maryland. 
ironically for a Canadian company that was coming to Maryland <laughs> to do the show. But, uh, but yeah, it, it's, it, I've been, I've been <laughs> thoroughly immersed in Canadian theater for the last 10 years. And, and I've, I've been lucky enough to work across the country as well. You know, yeah. I've, I've been working in Stratford. I've done shows in London, uh, Ontario at the grand where I'm actually now a board member. Um, and I've done shows in Winnipeg and I've worked in Toronto a little bit. So, uh, I've gotten to know, uh, the Canadian scene beyond the festival circuit, mm. uh, which has been really eye-opening and, and really wonderful. This is a, the, the theater community in Canada is so robust and so alive and so thoughtful. Um, and it doesn't have a lot of the trappings that I, I found in the States, you know, before I came here, it, it, it doesn't feel as cutthroat or, uh, or oversaturated. And so I think there's a real sense of community here. Mm that you don't find on the macro level in the States. Hmm. I mean, one of the questions that I was mo am sort of most curious about is as an American who came to Canada to work, wh was there something that you found most shocking about the, about coming from Canada to sorry, from the U S to Canada to work or was, was that it? Um, that was a big part of it. I, I you know, the, there are some things that I felt a little odd about, I guess, in Canada. I mean, <laughs> the, there's a big difference in the way that uh, actors sort of collectively bargain in Canada and how, we, how, how actors' equity functions as an entity up here that is very different than the way it feels and functions in the States. Hmm. Um, so that was, a bit, uh, that was a bit of an adjustment to get used to. Um, Canadians call breaks at weird times <laughs> in rehearsal <laughs> in the States. It, it's much, much stricter. It feels like there's, there's sort of a, there's a much more codified, you must take 10 minutes now uh, <laughs> structure. And in Canada, it's like, you know, well, you know, you get 10 minutes every two hours, however you want to split that up is up to you kind of thing. Um, uh, I actually quite enjoy that. I, I, I find it, I find that flexibility really helpful when you're, when you're working, you everybody's mm. everybody's pretty respectful of when we need to step away for a second but uh mm. but it's nice to be able to sort of finish a finish a bit of work before you have to before the stage manager stands up and blows the horn um, <laughs> um yeah and 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 generally i i i find uh i find another difference is that the 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 way canadians approach um uh, Tough conversations. Uh, it can be a dual. It can be a double-edged sword up here a little bit. I think because mm -hmm. because Canadians are, on the whole, more polite <laughs> than Americans. That is not a stereotype. But it, well, it may be a stereotype, but it is. It is a stereotype, but it's also kind uh, of true. But it's also kind of true. Um, and so I think in some ways it's harder to have some of the really tough conversations up here than it is in the states because in the states. You know, people aren't afraid to throw a few rocks. Um, uh, but I also find that once those conversations happen in Canada, there's a much more thoughtful approach to them. Um, I think because I think because Canadians don't have the same tolerance for uh, impassioned argument, maybe, or or uh, they don't have the same tolerance for conflict in communication. Mm -hmm. Uh, when conflict happens, they they bend over backwards to fix the problems so that we don't have to engage in conflict again. <laughs> um, 
I would sort of, I would ask a, sort of a follow up to that, and 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 you know, it's sort of interesting, you know, talking to you as somebody who sort of grew up with an eye that's that's different, who 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 saw from the from the U.S. side. Are we resolving the problem? Are we fixing the problem, or are we just sort of like throwing a rug over it, just so we don't have to look at it? Depends. Depends. <laughs> I mean, I, this this past few weeks has been a very interesting time because. Um, at the festival, at least we we've we've sort of we've sort of set in motion something that that has been a long time coming. Mm-hmm. Um, the black actors at the festival uh, were we, we organized to create a, a live stream broadcast. Uh, I guess it was almost three weeks ago now, called Black Like Me. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a two hour discussion about uh, what it's like to be a person of color in the theater uh, and what we've sort of had to or, you know, uh, undergo and, 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 um, and withstand over the course of our careers. Um, and a lot of very difficult truths were told. Um, so like I said before, you know, this is, this is unusual because this level of uh, candor has not typically been uh, encouraged. <laughs> Shall mm-hmm. we say, um, over the course of my time here, but 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 I'll tell you, after that day, um, I think a lot of people woke up to mm-hmm. what had been going on, uh, and I'm seeing movement I've never seen before in terms of how people are trying to begin to address these problems, and they're really trying to address the problem and not uh, n- and not succumb to their comfort in the in the conversation. Um, I hope that that trend continues. I'm not. I'm not overly optimistic that it's going to, but I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that people are, are genuine in that, in that resolve. Um, but it, it, it really does speak to sort of that dynamic of like when the floodgates open up here, they really open. I mean, it's, it's certainly a long time coming. I have attended, I don't know how many panel discussions about, quote unquote, diversity in the theater that often had the same people talking and saying the same thing and a lot of people nodding and saying, yes, something should change. And then nothing, nothing happening, but nothing like what I've seen in the past, the past few weeks, Mm -hmm. Um, nothing like uh, the black like me and the results that you're talking about there. And also the openness on Twitter with the, the, in the dressing room hashtag and and following that. Um, I, I think the candor was important, but also there's, there's a moment now, which is sort of, well, like one of the, one of the, the podcasts I listened to, uh, um, uh, code switch was like had an episode this week. Uh, that's like, that was, uh, entitled white people. Why now? Mm-hmm. But I mean, that's a good, that's an excellent question. Why now? But at least like now let's, let's make the, let's like make movements and make some changes. Yeah. I mean, and there, I, I have, I have a lot of theories about why now, but, but I think uh, fundamentally there's sort of a, a confluence of factors that, that allowed mm-hmm. this to be, that allowed this conversation to be broken wide open. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, everybody, first of all, is isolated at home in front of their computer screens 24 hours a day. Um, they have nowhere else to go. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, so they're that's watching 100%. These, they're listening yeah. to what's happening. They're, 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 they're probably accessing sources of information and, and, and voices they've never accessed before. Cause yeah. they haven't had the dedicated time to, you know, run out of Netflix. Um, yeah. I think also 
when you see the resolve of people in uh, various parts of the states and across Canada mm. demonstrating and marching in the streets, knowing that there is a threat to their lives because of COVID and realizing mm. that this is just more important. Um, I think that's galvanizing people in a special way. Mm -hmm. uh, I also think that in terms of the people speaking their minds, um, power, power structures are fundamentally shifting. So I, I think, I think six months ago, I wouldn't have been willing to speak up like that. Maybe the rest of us wouldn't, um, mm -hmm. at least not in such a, such a, uh, a confrontational way, I suppose. Um, but it strikes me that the power structures in this industry and in fact, around much of the world have been shifting monumentally in the last couple of weeks. And, uh, mm -hmm. and, and since COVID began, I mean, you know, I'm not worried about repercussions. I'm not worried about reprisal from artistic directors because at the moment and for a considerable amount of time to come, there's not a single artistic director in the country that can give me a job. Um, and so I think it's imperative at this point that because we have this time of pause, because we have this sort of shift in the paradigm, uh, we really need to figure out how we're going to come back uh, from a cultural perspective, from the perspective of theater makers uh, who have long been disempowered. Um, and we need to figure out how to level the playing field. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, there's always a hierarchical structure in the room. A director is going to want to have the final say on how a production looks. That's their job, right? They're, they're there to tell yeah. it. They're there to be the, the eye, the outside eye, and, and make sure that what's happening works. Um, but there, there are ways to do that that uh, can reduce harm that can mm -hmm. that can mitigate the uh, oppression that goes on in the room both aggressively and microaggressively um, and i think it's critical that we examine that before we come back so that when we start up we can get rolling again and and restart a machine that's going to empower people and not uh and not tear them down i think you might be right i mean you're probably right about the fact that this couldn't have happened if the machine was running at its normal rate Absolutely. I mean, I'd be the doing, I'd be doing, yeah. H, I'd, I'd be doing like, you know, six shows a week plus rehearsals mm -hmm. full time right now. There's no way anybody would have had the bandwidth to be able to handle uh, this kind of self-examination, mm -hmm. you know. Um, it, it, have you, in terms of the, the I, I once... I was speaking to uh, uh, another uh, years ago on a, on another episode of the podcast. I was speaking to uh, a black director who said that that she lived in the states and she lived in Canada, and if she had to choose a brand of racism, she would choose the American South because at least you knew where you stood. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> and is that, that something that resonates there? <laughs> What's that? That's something that resonates. That's something you agree with? Oh, absolutely. I mean, look, I. I've been called a nigger to my face more in Canada than I ever was in the States. Huh. Uh, and it comes at times and in places that I never would have expected. Uh, you know, in the States, the, the, the conventions are there, right? You know who you're meeting most of the mm. time. Um, people wear their identities in ways they don't in Canada. And I think that's partially the sort of Canadian politeness, right? That, you know, mm -hmm. um, but I think it's also, um, I think it also speaks to this, this desire that, that us citizens seem to have to, to meet the world head on with everything they are like a fucking sledgehammer. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, yeah. So, 
So in terms of overt acts of racism, um, the States does have a bit of a, uh, a sort of readability that Canada mm. doesn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, the States also has a lethality that Canada doesn't. Um, and, and, and that's, it's a tough thing to, to wrestle with, you know, a good friend of mine who's a, a director in Canada, a person of color uh, once said to me, uh, I've worked in Canada, I've worked in the States, you know, in Canada, you can walk out your door and go a month and never be reminded of who you are in the States. Mm-hmm. You walk out your door and they'll remind you you're a black woman in about five minutes. Mm-hmm. Somebody will. Um, and so I think so, in some ways in Canada, it, it becomes, especially if you're living in a predominantly white center, it becomes mm-hmm. so jarring when it happens. Um, it's really alarming when you're confronted with it. Because in, in some cases, you can sort of be lulled into a false sense of security, into complacency. Thing, you know, um, It's sort of a practice to remember where you are. Yeah. Um, which is part of the reason why some of these practices in a rehearsal hall become mm. so jarring and so so terrifying, um, inducing such sort of paralysis in terms of dealing with it when they happen. Mm. I mean, the the rehearsal hall is an interesting is an interesting thing because I think um, I was talking uh, 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 with uh, some people that had been uh, at Soul Pepper around the time when that that scandal blew up, mm-hmm. and you know. We were remarking about how, for the most part, in in many cases, theater school prepares you to be complicit in that (laughs) because it teaches you not to rock the boat. Yeah. Don't don't speak out in rehearsal. Make sure that you're that you don't cause any trouble, which, of course, is the antithesis of 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 what needed to happen there and what needs to happen in the difficult conversations that are happening at Stratford and at theaters uh, uh, across Canada in regards to race. Without a doubt. Yeah. I mean, the, I remember, I remember things said to me in theater school that, that to this day just curl my hair. I mean, it, it's, it, it's staggering to think that I didn't quit <laughs> right then mm. and there, or that any of us didn't quit right then and there. You know, I, I did a, I did a monologue from Brutus one day in a Shakespeare class in university. Uh, and afterwards there was no, there was there were no notes on what I had done on my technique or on you know my text work or anything. The only feedback I got was the professor looked at me and said, "Do you have an Othello or an Aaron or a, a Caliban, perhaps?" <sighs> and I said, "No." And he said, "You should. That's what you'll be doing." Uh, <laughs> I went, "Okay. Uh, well, I have nothing more to gain from you." Yeah. Um, uh, but also, you know, it's a lost class for me because that, you know, that, that 10 week period of studying Shakespeare with this professor all culminated in him telling me that I'll never play anything but, you know, stereotypically black characters. And there's right. nothing to say that Caliban's even black for Christ's no. sake. It's, you know, he's, he's a fish monster, but because, yes. but because there's that sort of bestial quality the mm-hmm. the the colonial mind, I guess, just goes well. It must. I mean, he, black folks are closer to monsters than white folks. So. <sighs> um, you know, I guess that's the that's the the inevitable uh, old school mentality. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, it, that's the, theater school sort of laid those things in, in some ways. And in other ways, theater school, uh, broke me out of those things. I mean, there, there, I had a professor, uh, in university named Essie Bayerobi and he, he passed away several years ago now, but he, um, he called himself an intellectual terrorist hmm. and he, he helped me build a practice of disrupting every room I possibly could. Um, mm. You know, breaking down assumptions and stereotypes and sort of coming at people sideways <laughs> with a, with a sort of piercing intellect um, that folks didn't expect. Mm. Um, and I've, I've always tried to remember him in those moments where it's like, I know what I should be doing. I know, I know what uh, is going to land me in a lot of trouble. And then I know what Esiaba would do, hmm. which would be sort of to circumvent the trouble and, and cut right to the heart of the matter. Um, hmm. he, he was extraordinary, but I, I, and, and, you know, he, he was Nigerian and, 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 you know, one of very few uh, black teachers that I've ever had in my life. I think that's a common hmm. experience for most people um, to have that few, but but I think he he really kept me sane <laughs> through that time, mm. uh, and kept me feeling validated because he mm-hmm. he told me, um, he taught me how to see myself. We were talking about earlier about looking in the mirror. He 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 taught me how to make friends with that person. Um, mm. Haven't always haven't always been able to to keep that up that practice, but uh, but he laid a framework for me to be able to find it again. Mm. When you, I mean, you mentioned being, you know, cautiously optimistic about about the future of of, of theater and 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 all of these conversations about race that are happening now. Mm-hmm. Um, in your cautious optimism, if you look ahead, mm-hmm. we're going to forget about the pessimism that, that 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 can come in. But if you were to imagine a Stratford Festival, mm-hmm. what might you see, or what would you love to see happen? I don't necessarily have that crystal ball. Uh, I would like to see an organization that really comes to grips with what they are and what they represent for people. Mm -hmm. Um, I would like to see an organization and they've started to do this that acknowledges uh, the damage they have done Mm -hmm. uh, and have, and take a really honest accounting of, where they've come from. Um, I mean, ultimately, I think the festival will, over the next 12, 18 months, uh, discover about themselves things that they've never even considered. Uh, I'm excited to see what those things are in terms of how they may be able to reach out uh, and in fact, go, go meet communities uh, that they've largely excluded where they are. Um, I think that's going to be critical for them because expecting people to just come to Stratford, Ontario uh, and hand over money to have an experience in the theater is not going to come without a significant amount of uh, meaningful outreach. And I don't mean the sort of mission to civilize that most education departments at theaters actually are. I mean, I mean, a, a, a very humble approach to say, 
we need to make amends and that's on us and we intend mm. to do that. And here's how, mm. um, and I think they're getting there. I mean, the, the statements that I've seen coming out of the office that, that the artistic director, Anthony Cimolino has made over the last few weeks that the organization released a couple of weeks ago before the black, like me discussion, you know, they, they evince a desire to, um, to tell the truth, uh, and to search for, you know, their own individual truths about, about what they are and what their part in this destructive system has been. Um, if they're brave enough to stare that in the face, uh, and really have honest discussions about that, uh, I think they can be a real agent for, for change moving forward. Um, you know, look, they they have the biggest, uh, if you will, um, stick on the playground. They're mm -hmm. an enormous organization, 60 plus million dollar budgets. Um, they produce, uh, an absurd amount of work every year. They hire well over a hundred actors every year. Um, you know, 12 to 15 plays. They have four performance spaces in town, one brand new, uh, you know, 60 to a hundred million dollar theater right on the water. Um, they have resources that are truly uh, extraordinary. If they can figure out how to bring those resources to bear in ways that empower everyone in the theater community. And I mean, every marginalized community, I mean, every voice they possibly can. Uh, I think they can, they can really lead the charge on this revolution as long as they center narratives um, of the people that they have been stepping on for so long. Mm -hmm. And when I say center those narratives, I don't mean that they program them and produce those plays themselves. I mean, they need to bring us, they need to bring us in to do it ourselves. Right. Um, right. Yeah. It's interesting. The, the, you know, I mentioned earlier the way that the Canadians, um, it's like calling it a problem fixed is by like throwing the rug over top of it by having the conversation and listening to the conversation and, and doing it in such a public way. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, the festival gave the keys to the Twitter account to, uh, to the to the black artists and and uh, to encourage the in the in the dressing room uh, conversation, um, that's not throwing a rug over something that is shining a light on it. So hopefully, in the time that in the years that that, that the year ahead and the years that follow, those conversations will continue, but also result in um, black directors, black playwrights, black black actors, black lighting people designers um uh in in the in in the theater and, and really you know a real change to the way that the the festival has worked yeah i mean administration as well i mean you know this is this is one of the things i've said to them from the beginning you walk into that mm -hmm. office and you don't see a single person of color working there until mm -hmm. very recently um mm -hmm. uh and it especially in a in a in a uh, supervisory role you know, we've had the odd occasional, you know, associate producer or or someone who's there on a grant um, working and shadowing one of the lead administrators. But but in terms of someone who has their hands on the wheel of programming and messaging, uh, it, it hasn't it hasn't been the practice at Stratford. Um, I think also I, I think also we, we have to really grapple with uh how and whose story we center 
mm. um, what narratives are being what narratives are being presented. You know, we have a fundamental problem in the way that we approach entertainment and art and and all of these narratives, and and that is, you know, as I was growing up, for example, I'm a black man. I did not have the chance to sort of academically access black work until I was in university. Hmm. Right. Um, and even then it was a raisin in the sun. Uh, you know, my parents introduced me to James Baldwin when I was a kid, mm -hmm. but going to school, that was never part of the curriculum. Mm -hmm. Every story that I was asked to participate in, have a classroom discussion around was a story about a white protagonist or written by a white person. Mm -hmm. Even if it was about some other cultural culture, um, yeah. and so functionally what that means is when I encounter work that actually speaks about an experience analogous to mine, it is inherently novel. It sets up this, it sets up this sort of toxic relationship whereby I get a taste of something authentic to myself and I'm trained not to expect more of that. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think, I think. I think as a theater with the stature of Stratford um, and many other regional theaters across the country, we have to do a better job of allowing people to look into that mirror and love themselves. Mm -hmm. um, because if we don't, if we don't dedicate ourselves to that, we're going to maintain this toxic relationship with the communities that surround us. Mm -hmm. um, and, and within white communities too. I mean, this, this, I, I think I think about what conversations would look like today and what the world would sound like if white folks had grown up really understanding how to center narratives of color. Mm -hmm. Like what would that what would that be like? And I don't mean appropriating their music or their ways of speaking or dress or anything like that. I mean actually understanding what where the seeds of joy are in other cultures. Mm -hmm. Um that I feel like could be revolutionary yeah. Uh, because that's the empathetic exercise that doesn't come along with appropriation. Mm -hmm. I've been thinking a lot about the media that I consume. Mm -hmm. um, I have been noticing, you know, as I watch things on television and uh, the video games that I play, I've, I've, I'm very aware now. And I've been thinking about it for a little while about the fact that there are no black faces and there are no, no brown faces there are no asian faces faces there's like it's it is a white default um and you know like those the stories that, that we see on screen sort of uh, inform how we see the world yeah 100 percent. and if we only see the white faces and we see the white stories those are those are prioritized in the in the culture mm -hmm. and i think it's high time that we that we that we see more uh, more colorful faces in all of our media. Yeah, without a doubt. More colorful faces, a, a wider variation of gender identities, mm, sexual orientations. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, I, we we prioritize the individual culturally and mm -hmm. sort of in the popular imagination as long as that individual fits within a narrative that's acceptable to us. Mm -hmm. And the only way to to broaden that acceptance is to celebrate diversity in a very practical way 
Um, and and that, spe- that speaks to how we create all of this art. I mean, I, I've been playing uh, Red Dead Redemption 2. <laughs> mm, yeah, I, I know the game well. It's a beautifully rendered game. I love that. I love playing that game, but it always bothers me that I, I can't I can't be anybody but that that character. No, exactly. You can't well, change that avatar. Yeah, no, you can't. Uh, there are games, and I always appreciate the games that give you options that let you design your character. Um, uh, games like Mass Effect, for example, and 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 along those veins, where you can create the character that 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 you want to play, and the game allows you to make it look like you. Whereas a game like a beautiful game like Red Dead Redemption, you're just playing a a white outlaw. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I, I, I applaud the game on some level for sort of addressing issues of race, but it's, it's done in a sort mm-hmm. of tertiary way. It's not, it doesn't have a, a whole lot of bearing on the story. It feels like. EB, thank you so much for, for this conversation tonight. It's my pleasure, Phil. This has been a Homebody Productions production.